Our scripture reading this morning is found in Hosea chapter 10. Would you turn there with me? Hosea chapter 10. If you don't have your own Bible, our ushers do have Bibles available. If you raise your hand, they'll bring a Bible for you. You can use throughout our service this morning. Hosea chapter 10. Let's all stand in respect to the reading of God's holy word. I'm going to read before you and ask you to follow along attentively as I read Hosea chapter 10. Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more his fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. Their heart is false. Now they must bear their guilt. The Lord will break down their altars and destroy their pillars. For now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? They utter mere words. With empty oaths they make covenants. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. The inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of beth Avon. Its people mourn for it, and so do its idolatrous priests, those who rejoice over it and over its glory, for it has departed from them. The thing itself shall be carried to Assyria as tribute to the great king. Ephraim shall be put to shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his idol. Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, Cover us, and to the hills, Fall on us. From the days of Gibeah you have sinned, O Israel. There they have continued. Shall not the war against the unjust overtake them in Gibeah? When I please, I will discipline them. And nations shall be gathered against them when they are bound up for their double iniquity. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to, thre to thresh, and I spared her fair neck. But I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow. J Jacob must harrow for himself. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground, for it is the time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. You have plowed iniquity and have reaped injustice. You have eaten the fruit of lies, because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. Therefore, the tumult of war shall arise among your people, and all, and all your fortresses shall be destroyed. As Shalman destroyed Beth Arbel on the day of battle, mothers were dashed in pieces with their children. Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great evil. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. May God give us understanding in the reading of his word and preaching through this text this morning. May he open our eyes to help us see the truth from his word and then to help us in applying that in our own lives. Let's take a moment now as we pray that we bow our heads in a time of prayer. 
Father, we thank you for this time that we've come together. We pray, Lord, that you indeed would be in our midst to help us to see your truth and to understand your word, understand your ways, that we might open our hearts to you, that we might see ourselves in our own sinfulness, that we might see our need for you, we might see your grace and your mercy, that we might be drawn to that, that we might long for it, and we might receive it as we repent and turn to you. We thank you for allowing us to be here, that we would be able to worship you. You are the one that enable us to worship. We pray, Lord, for that enablement today, that you cleanse our hearts and allow us to come and to worship you. We thank you for your means of grace to us in various ways, for your, the strength and the health that you've given us. Even as we pray for those who are sick amongst us, some are, are missing because of sickness, and some are here and still dealing with sicknesses. We, we pray for, for each one, Lord, that you would watch over, that you would bless, that you would heal, that you would, even in um, sicknesses, allow us to remember you, to thank you, to praise you, to look to you, to hope in you, to trust in you, and uh, that we might bring glory to you in every situation that we encounter. We thank you for the 25 years of ministry that you've given to this church, and as we look at it, we thank you for your faithfulness, for your goodness over that time. And we pray, Lord, that we would be encouraged to go on, that we would do um, all that you have for us to do in being faithful, living the gospel, and giving the gospel out in the area that you have placed us in. And we pray this now for Christ's sake. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, that song is fitting and appropriate as we go through the series in Hosea. We asked that question last week, how are we to respond when we see, when we hear of the judgment of God? And I kind of feel like as I read chapter 10, as we go back to chapter 9 and some of those chapters before that, we kind of, it, it seems like a gloomy mood where the judgment of God is, is prevalent in the text, and we wonder, well, how am I to respond to this? Is, is, is this just a downer when I see the judgment of God? And, and yet the believer, through the word of God, is encouraged to, to, as the song suggests, I will sing hallelujah. I will actually rejoice when I hear of God's judgment because I recognize a few things. It's God's judgment that highlights his grace. All of us deserve his judgment, yet none of us deserve his grace. And as God deals with Israel in the book of Hosea, we, one of the things that stands out to us is that Israel has sinned and stands in line with God's judgment, and yet God is, is constantly warning them, giving them opportunity to repent, and speaking tenderly and expressing his love to them. Isn't that what he has done to us? When we were yet in our sins, Christ died, not for the holy, not for the righteous, but for the ungodly. That's you and that's me. 
And so I will sing hallelujah because when I see the judgment of God, I, I realize that I'm deserving of it. But what God does is he places it. When I put my faith in Christ, he is placing judgment that belongs to me. He's placing it on the Lord Jesus Christ. So I can say hallelujah to the one who bears my judgment. In chapter 10, we see a couple of things here. Israel has been blessed, but their blessing, their response to their blessing has been to add to their sin. That's the one thing that I see in the first couple of verses. In spite of their blessing, their response to that blessing is to add to their sin. And that, that in itself reminds me of how we um, treat God sometimes. Even after he has blessed us, we have an attitude to spurn him and not give what rightly belongs to him and even add to our sin. The second thing I see, and I see that in the first 10 verses, in verse 11 and 12, um, God desires that Israel would respond with repentance. I asked the question, if God's judgment is there, why does he give us so many warnings that this judgment is about to come? Well, the obvious answer is he gives us opportunity to repent, to turn from sin and to turn in wholeheartedly in a wholehearted way to him. He desires that we would respond with repentance in verses 11 and 12. And then um, because Israel has sinned and will not turn from their sin, God's judgment is sitting there for them. He will, in fact, judge sin. That's the one thing that draws us to his grace. We know that God will judge sin. He is not going to look the other way. He's not going to hide his face from it. He's not going to sweep it under the rug, so to speak. God will judge sin. Satan's uh, 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 word and influence is always that either we're not deserving of that judgment or the judgment because of God's grace, it's going to be put off, it's going to be put off, and it won't come. We have a whole generation of children who don't understand consequences of their action, and that's because parents haven't done what's necessary to teach that consequences are inevitable, and they will come. God, when he deals with his children, when he deals with Israel, he's letting them know that there are definite consequences to their wrong, and they will surely face those consequences if they don't turn from their ways. Now, we think that's stern, and that's mean, and that's, that's uh, ungracious, but God says, no. God is a gracious God. He says, turn from your sin. If you do not turn from it, there are consequences that you will not avoid if you do not turn from sin. And so that's what we get in a nutshell in chapter 10. Let's walk through. Uh, I, I, I'm learning to appreciate and love 
the, the prophets. Here we have a minor prophet, Hosea, and the language that they use to communicate God's truth. I want to walk us through some of that. He uses this uh, uh, what I, uh, agricultural language to communicate his truth because he's talking to people that come from that background. And, and I kind of wonder, well, God, why are you using that? You know, because I don't have an agricultural background. I didn't, I didn't grow up on a farm, and, and I know little about farming things, but God uses that. And then I realized he uses that because even though I'm an urban person, I go, to, I go to pick and say, just like me and you, to get, to get what I eat. I don't grow it in my backyard. Uh, <laughs> so I'm kind of removed from that in a sense. But he, 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 he brings it that way because it, there are some principles of life that are taught to us in nature, in his creation, that we should not miss. And it's a basic principle of sowing and reaping. Planting and harvesting. And so he uses his agricultural language to, to, to teach us. He starts off in verse 1, he's saying this, Israel was once a luxuriant vine. He is saying in that sense that, that they, when they started off, when God started with his relationship with his people, they were a tender people, they were in great need, and in some ways they had a humility and a responsiveness to him in some ways. And they have moved from that now. They were tender like a young plant. They realize their, their need for God, and, and, and I think we need to, 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 to recognize and, and, and see that in our own lives. They were tender. They were fruitful. He says in verse 1, a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. But then here's the problem. The more its fruit increased, the more altars he built. And as, as his country improved, he improved his pillars. But he starts off saying they were this tender plant. They were blessed. Later on in the chapter, he says that they were a trained calf. Look at verse 11. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh. I, I take there that the word calf is, is prominent there. They, they were young, they were tender, they were trainable. They had their own ways, but they, they were willing to, 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 to look, to listen to God, but now they have moved from that. He says in that same verse, in verse 11, I spared her fair neck. In other words, as a, as a young calf, he didn't put them in a yoke right away. didn't make them work the difficult task that the mature uh, beast would do. He spared them from that. But that's not always going to happen, as he hints here. They were a luxuriant vine, but they have become a poisonous weed. Verse 4 kind of brings that out. He says, that um, they utter mere words with empty oaths, they make covenants. So judgment springs up like poisonous weeds. 
he's using this, this, this planting term, this agricultural term to say instead of a, a, a vine now all around them has sprung up because of their sin, they, they're more like a, a field full of weeds. He says, this judgment has sprung up, and he's using an agricultural term there to talk about how his judgment is coming up and is springing up. One thing about weeds is they grow up pretty quickly. They seem like they come out of nowhere, and they, they can take over the whole field. And he's warning Israel because of their sin that God's judgment is going to to face them. He says this judgment springs up like poisonous weeds in the furrows of the field. A furrow is, is the narrow groove in the ground that's, that, that is plowed so that you can plant the seed. You know, in our own gardens, we would take a hole and we would dig up a little dirt and, and have a groove there and we could plant seed in that groove. Well, where seed should be planted... Now poisonous weeds are taking root. This is a picture of Israel. We, we ought to see this as, as a picture that could happen in our lives. That instead of bearing fruit as God would have us to, we have to be careful. Are there weeds growing in those same pharaohs in our lives? Has God plowed a path and you filled it or allowed it to be filled instead of his seed? allowed it to be filled with that which would destroy the field, poisonous weeds. He uses the image of thorns and thistles in verse 8 that work against what is planted. In verse 8 he says, The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel, shall be destroyed. Thorn and thistle shall grow up on their altars. Again, this picture of weeds, that which would crowd out the tender plant is coming up now to choke out what should grow and what should be desired. He uses an image of a dead twig to discuss what the future is for Israel. In verse 7, he says this, Samaria's king shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. We get that image, don't we? A twig is, is, is part of the plant or part of a tree, but um, it's light and it floats. And, and here we have this dead, disconnected twig that's on the face of the waters. And the image there is that it's light and the waters, as the waves go, just take this fig any and everywhere it wishes. This is, the, this is the future of who? Of the king of Israel. Samaria's king, Samaria's the capital of the northern kingdom, shall perish like a twig on the face of the waters. In other words, the twig doesn't give direction to itself. It simply goes with the waves. It goes with the flow. It, it has no control anymore. Something else has taken over its control, and it is subject to that something else. At the end of the chapter, in verse 15, he says this, Thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because of your great sin. At dawn, the king of Israel shall be utterly cut off. He's saying your leader 
will cease to exist. He is showing that this nation will come to an end because of their sin. God is judging this nation and the, the, the leader, the, the, the top of this nation will no longer exist. God is showing his judgment. He's using those agricultural terms to, to, to make that clear to them. Not only are they like a dead twig, this is what happens to their king. In verse 11, he, he shows that, that this, he expresses it this way. Ephraim was a trained calf that loved to thresh. I spared her fair neck, but I will put Ephraim to the yoke. Judah must plow. Jacob must harrow for himself. Instead of a young and trained calf, now they're going to be burdened with work, right? Burdened with work is the, the picture of uh, uh, Ephraim will be put to the yoke. A yoke was a, 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 an instrument that, took, that uh, was put, placed on more than one animal, two or more, so that they would plow in the same direction. So that they could do the task, do the work that, that they were set to do. And he's saying Israel is going to have a tough labor task ahead of them. They're going to have some rough days ahead. He says, uh, I spared them from this before, but now I'm going to put them to the yoke. Judah must plow. Plow. Jacob must harrow for himself. Harrow means to, to break up the uh, the the, the weeded ground or, or to uh, uh, um, plow it through. And he's saying they're going to be overworked now. They're going to be burdened with a difficult task. So God is using this picture. He uses the picture of sowing and reaping. Of course, in Galatians chapter 6, uh, in the New Testament, we're using that, that picture as well. Be not deceived. Don't be mocked. Don't be deceived. Whatever a person sows, that is what they will reap. That's an agricultural phrase to show us the, the principle of sowing and weeping. It's something we need to understand. Not only is there a principle that what you sow, you will reap, but if we understand that principle correctly, we sow a seed, we reap a tree or a crop. We sow a little, we reap a lot. We sow today, we reap tomorrow. So it doesn't come right away, and it doesn't come in the same measure that we sowed. It comes later, and it comes much more. That's the principle that we don't too often teach our children as we should. There are consequences for your behavior. Those consequences cannot be avoided. They will come later. So just because you don't see them now don't mean they won't come. And when they come, they will come in bunches. You, sit, you sold, you planted one seed, you will get a whole tree. So that principle of sowing and reaping is important. He says in verse 4, this is what they have sown. They utter mere words. They're empty voice to the Lord. Their empty praise and worship to God was just that. It was mere words. God is not interested in our words or mere words, our vows and our oaths that are simply words. He wants our heart's commitment in our lives, our actions. He says in verse 4, 
they make empty oaths. They make covenants. With empty oaths, they make covenants. It is interesting that he, he, he's talking about their relationship, God's people, and their relationship to him. But what we find out is that those empty wills, mere words and empty oaths, are, are detail every part of our lives. If your commitment to the Lord God who loved you, who created you, who redeemed you is empty, guess what? Your commitment to everything else under him is going to be empty as well. In other words, if I can't trust you to serve God faithfully, I certainly can't trust you to act on my behalf. If your relationship with the Lord is not right and committed based on his faithfulness to you, his goodness, his grace, then what can we expect that you will do towards your fellow man? That's one of the things that, that we fail to understand. We, seem, we tend to think that, you know, well, my relationship with the Lord might, might, might not be what it should be, but I'm okay with my brother and sister. I'm okay with my horizontal relationships, even though my vertical may not be on par. And God says that's impossible. In 1 John, he says, how can you say you love God and not love your brother? He's saying that the two go together. And so he has pointed out this, this empty oath. This, he, he's talking about this, this principle of sowing and reaping. They sow mere words, empty oath. They, they, they reap in that same verse, verse 4, poisonous weeds. Judgment springs up, it says, like poisonous weeds. In verse 13, he says, you have plowed iniquity. You have reaped injustice. Again, the principle of sowing and reaping, planting and reaping. You have sowed iniquity. You will reap injustice. Verse 14, he talks about war. Therefore, the tumult of war shall arise among your people. Fortresses will be destroyed in verse 14. So this, these, this is the reaping process. Their sin is going to bring the judgment of God. It's going to be impacted in various ways in their lives. So he's pointing that out. And you continue this theme with this agricultural theme. God encourages a plowing and a planting and a cultivating. Look at verse 12. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. They're to sow righteousness instead of what they have sown is iniquity or sin. They are to sow righteousness. They are to break up the fallow ground. Notice what it says in verse 12. Break up your fallow ground. Fallow ground, it's an interesting term. Fallow ground was ground that had been plowed and left to itself. Something that was plowed, prepared for seed, but they didn't put the seed in that season. I don't know why. Maybe, maybe they had plowed somewhere else and used all the seed somewhere else. But this ground had been plowed, 
but it hadn't been planted. That's interesting. What happens to that ground? Can you come back next season and just plant seed in it? No. It has become over, it's become hardened. The soil needs to be conditioned again. It needs to be plowed again so that you can plant seed in it. Guess what's going to grow in there? You think it's gonna, next season is going to just be clear and good dirt and, and ready for seed again? No. It's hardened, but something happens in hard. I notice something. I try to plant. I'm not very good at planting. I try to plant, plant seed, and I try to plant grass, and I try to plant some plants in the yard and some flowers and so forth. And it doesn't always go as I would like it to go. I end up spending money, and you buy your fertilizer, you buy the plant, and you try to water it, and you try to get the good dirt, and you try to do all those things you know you should do. I have an area in my home um, in my backyard that I've tried to plant, and, and, and I would put dirt there, and I put fertilizer, and I put a good plant there, and I would water it and try to water it, and I found out nothing grew there. And it took me years to realize this, but what happened was I'm planting this in an area. It just happens to be the location in my house is too close to the house itself, and my roof covers over and blocks rain from getting to that spot. It blocks the sunshine from, 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 from nourishing it and and. and, 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 and doing what the sun does. And, and so no matter what I did, it wasn't happening. But I noticed something else. I have a driveway, and, and you know, you have a small crack in that driveway, and I won't plant anything there, but I noticed something. Stuff will grow up in the cracks of concrete that I will try to put good seed in a place that I have plowed, that I've fertilized, that I've worked, that I've watered, and nothing happens there. But in the midst of a little tiny crack in concrete, a weed will sprout up. You go, why does that happen? I didn't do anything to plant that. In fact, I, try, I have to every year by year do something to avoid that. I've got to pull those weeds out. I've got to spray in that, eventually get that, get that driveway redone so there's no cracks. But even after you do that, the seams between the joints and the concrete, if you're not careful, something will spring up there. What's the principle there? Evil doesn't have to be planted. It's natural to this wicked world. And so if we don't do anything, guess what's going to grow? Weeds. Weeds will grow if you don't do anything. He's saying break up the, the fallow ground is that something has to be done for God's plant to grow and for it to be healthy and for it to, to pr produce fruit. You can't just leave it alone. If you leave it alone, even though you've plowed it, you leave it alone, something is going to come and replace it, and it's not the plant you were looking for. Israel has, has plowed and made itself available, but they haven't serve the Lord. They haven't planted the seed uh, of the Lord there, and so other things pop up. That happens all too often in our own lives. 
we often say, you know, if you have time, we said that this morning, if you have time, if you're not doing anything else, come to, you know, come, come to the inspiration tonight. That's not going to work. You know why? Because you're going to be doing something else. That's just natural. You're not going to be sitting at home saying, hmm, I've got nothing to do. The Bucks play early today. They probably own right now. The Brewers will play uh, later on. And, and you know, I, I, there's, I'm just sitting at home doing nothing. I guess I'll go and serve the Lord. I'm just going to do it. It's convenient for me. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Put him first. Make God priority in your life. Don't just let it be left over. Well, I plowed that field and, you know, whatever grows there, if God want to use it, he'll put a seed there. No. Weeds will grow there. It needs to be a work done for seed, for good seed to grow. And so he says, break up the fallow ground. Ground that had been plowed and was ready for seed, but seed didn't go in it. Go back, break it up, make it ready for seed, and then plant right seed in it. Jesus told the story, he says, you know, a person is possessed by wicked and evil spirits, and, and those spirits are removed. Those spirits go around looking for some place to settle in some place to live, some place to take over. And they find no place. They come back to the place where they came and they found the house swept and cleaned out. And they go, hmm, this is a good place to move in. We'll move right back in. And he said the, the, the last state of that person is worse than he began. Why? Because he plowed some ground, but he didn't replace it and put seed he just let it sit. He just let it sit. He says, you need to serve the Lord. You need to, to, to make him your priority, not just let it happen. Make him your priority. Not just, oh, I ain't doing nothing else. I might as well serve the Lord now. Not good enough. Make him your priority. What had happened to Israel is they had, they had been blessed by the Lord and they had moved into the land that God had promised them. And, and I, I don't know, maybe they had free time. Maybe they, 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 things were going well and they decided, hey, let's just let things happen. Let's not work at serving the Lord. Let's not commit ourselves. Let's just do what comes natural. Let's have fun. Let's relax. And the nations around them began to to impact them and affect them. They began to practice those things. Let me go back to verse 1. Now, I want you to notice this. He says this, <clears throat> Israel is a luxuriant vine that yields its fruit. The more its fruit increased, the more altars he built. As his country improved, he improved his pillars. I notice there's altars and pillars, and you begin to, what does he talk about? Is this pillar something that, you know, is structural support for a building? That's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is altars and pillars. Pillars were something that was erected for worship. 
something to honor and to worship. In fact, um, go back to, to Genesis, I think it's 28. I want to see. Let's go back there. Genesis 28. Verse 10. Genesis 28, 10. You with me there? Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and laid down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. Behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. There, this is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So this amazing event happened to Jacob. He recognized God was speaking to him. God had promised to him some of the same promises that had gone to his father, his grandfather, and now coming to him, and he wanted, he wanted to recognize this and honor God. Guess what he did? Verse 18. So early in the morning... Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and he set it up for a pillar. And poured oil on it, on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. What does Bethel mean? When you look in verse 17, you see he was afraid. He said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. Bethel means house. Beth, B-E-T-H, is the word, for, Hebrew word for house, and E-L is the word for Jehovah God. Bethel, house of God. And what did he do? He built, he established a pillar there. A pillar. I brought you this to this verse for several reasons. One is we see the practice that Jacob had when, when he didn't know what to do. And, and, and what he did was he, he set up a pillar to honor the God who he now met and was introduced, the God, Jehovah God. And so he named this place Bethel, house of God, and he established a pillar. So here we see that pillars were set up to establish and to worship and to honor a deity. 
Israel back in Hosea was setting up altars and pillars, but not for God, but for Baal and for other false gods. It's interesting, this word Bethel. This is another reason why I brought you to here. You can just note that and go back to our passage in, in Hosea. There's a play on words in this chapter that plays on the word Bethel. We see it in the last verse, verse 15. He says, thus it shall be done to you, O Bethel, because Israel was to be the house of God. And so the prophet in writing this is playing on them. They were to be the house of God, but in fact they weren't. He says in verse 5, the inhabitants of Samaria tremble for the calf of what? Beth-Avon. It was Beth-Avon. There's a play on words there. Beth means house. Avon means evil. House of evil. It should have been Bethel, but it's house of evil. Because of their idolatrous practices, they had now replaced the, author, the, the, the prophet is saying, you no longer have the house of God. You're worshiping in a house. You're worshiping, you erupted, erupted altars and pillars, but they aren't to God. You're going through the motions to mere words. To worship God, but God is not being honored there. God is not receiving that worship. This is no longer Bethel, house of God. This is the house of evil. So he plays on that word. And he does it again later on in the chapter. But here we see in verse 9. The high places of Avon. Remember it was Beth Avon in verse 5. Now it's the high places of Avon. When it says high places, it's talking about those places that were used, that, er that, that erected uh, uh, their idols, their pillars, their altars to worship a false god. And he says, so you were involved in idolatry when you should have been Worshiping God. It just brings to note another thing. He's using agricultural terms, but he's also using terms that express their idolatry all through this chapter. He uses that first in verse 2 when he talks about their heart is false. In verse 4, we went over, he says, they utter mere words and empty oaths. In verse 9, he refers to, to their sin in this way. From the days of Gibeah, you have sinned, O Israel. We talked about Gibeah last week, didn't we? We said Gibeah is shown to us in Judges 19, 20, and 21. Judges is a strange book, especially towards the end of Judges. The principle that's operating in Judges, you see it in the... In, in, in the beginning of Judges, in Judges chapter 1, you see it in the end of Judges, in Judges chapter 21, as it sums up everything. And then in the middle of Judges, he reminds us this, that the people had no king. They did what was right in their own sight. In other words, they didn't know what they was doing. They were without a leader, and they just, well, 
this look good. Let's do this. Let's try this. And so that's the picture of Judges. And we get to chapter 19 and 20 and 21. We, we're made to look at that and our forehead should wrinkle up a little bit. Our eyes should scrunch up. And we go, what in the world is happening here? You see, a Levite who is to be a man of God in the service of worship to God, and yet he's just gone off. He's got a concubine. Go, well, that sounds kind of funny. First of all, she's unfaithful to him. I say, wow, what kind of world is this? He goes after her to reclaim her, and he takes her and, and eventually is headed back to his own home in Ephraim, and he needs to, to stop along the way. He looks to find refuge. He says, I ain't stopping at that place where the Jebusites ruled, and that happened to be Jerusalem because Israel didn't rule over that at that time. But he says, instead of there, I'm going to stop in the land of Israel, at Gibeah. He wanted to find refuge in Gibeah, where he should have found refuge in his own people's land. Wicked men came out to defile him and his concubine, and they abused her sexually all night and killed her and left her at his doorstop. The story continues and gets even, even more bizarre as he takes her body back home with him, divides her body into 12 pieces and sends it out to Israel and says, look what these perverse men who should, are, are from the nation of Israel, look what these perverse men did to their own people. And as that word gets out, the whole nation is in an uproar, and it says, we can't have this in Israel. You think that's a good response, and yes, it is. We can't have this kind of wickedness in Israel. As they go, they say, what are we going to do about this? You can read chapter 19 and 20 and 21 of Judges, and you can see what develops there. And he, in Hosea, he's using this whole thing to show how wicked his people have become. We can say two words or two cities that just mean wickedness, Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, Gibeah was like that. In fact, the same sin that was practiced in Sodom and Gomorrah, but which God destroyed the entire city, it was happening right in Gibeah, which wasn't a foreign country. It was a nation of Israel. It was, it was part of the nation of Israel. And so as they set out how to, how to deal with this, they, 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 they did inquire of the Lord. He says, yes, go. Make war against these people. So they, they went to the, to the Benjaminites. That's what Gibeah was a part of, of the tribe of Benjamin. And they said, look, release the perverse men of this city so that we might judge them. Here's the sin of Israel. Benjamin says, no. In fact, they supported them in their wickedness. The moral of the story here is that Israel, what started out as a deal with a perverse men of a city came out to be a civil war. The whole nation is in war against the tribe of Benjamin. And so they fought that fight, which should be fought, but it was at great cost. It had three rounds to that battle. The first round, 22,000 men of Israel 
died. Not Benjamin, of Israel died. They went back to the Lord. Here's, here's the thing. Sometimes when we fight battles, we go, well, if we lost like that, that can't be God's will. And God said, no, fight them again. The second round, they went through 18,000 men of Israel. Not Benjamin, Israel died. And, you know, we, we go, well, well, wait a minute, God, I thought the good guys are supposed to win. Israel, see, evil and wickedness affects the whole nation. It's going to be a great cost to deal with today. God tells them, no, I want you to go after them again. And in the third round, they finally defeat them. But an entire tribe is affected and an entire nation is impacted as over 40,000 men lose their life. Good men who are on the right side. There's a great cost to deal with wickedness, but it needs to be done. In Hosea, he's reminding them of this wickedness and sin that is part of the history of this people. That God judges Sin and there's a great cost to it. Too often I've dealt with people right here in this church and they say, Pastor, I know what I'm doing is wrong and it's sinful, but let the Lord spank me. Let him judge me, let him discipline me, it's worth it. And I say to them, Really? Are you that foolish? They basically say, I'm just going to take my whooping because I'm not going to turn from my evilness. I'm going to continue doing this. I remember several years ago having this conversation with this person and they decided to stay in their sin. I believe as a result of that sin, I'm seeing it continue even now. I'm seeing the fruit, or actually the poisonous weeds of that sin right now, today. Right now. God has stated that in his word. Look, sin will be dealt with, and it comes at a great cost. We think we can navigate through those waters. We think that we can decide what we can accept. And, and, and yeah, I'll take my spanking now and then I'll go on and live the way I want. It doesn't work that way. God said that this whole nation was coming down. It was coming to an end. Its king would be removed and destroyed. The places that they had erected for worship to a false god will be torn down. And the calf that they once worshipped will be sent to, to the nation that took over them as tribute. As tribute. In other words, they, they use it as like a tax. Here, here's this golden image that we made. It's worth all this money. Here, you take it now, and it's yours, and we'll take it so you don't destroy us. And they ended up destroying them anyway. The great sin. God is teaching his people that sin impacts in ways that we don't always realize. The principle of sowing and reaping. You cannot control or negotiate. So here's what God says in verse 12. Sow for yourselves 
righteousness. I can feel the heart of God pleading with his people. This is the heart of God that says, I'm going to judge this nonsense, this sin in your life, this sin in the nation. I can't stand for it. But what I desire from you is this. So, so for yourselves righteousness. What will you reap? You will reap steadfast love. God says, I'm in relationship with you. And when you live out my principles, my righteousness, you will reap steadfast love. You know what? It takes faith to believe that. It takes faith to believe that. Because all around us, what we see is those who don't trust in God, they are sowing, they are investing in other things, and it seems to bring them good things. It seems to work out. I mean, from a personal basis, I, years ago I said, Lord, I commit my life to you and, 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 and the the path that you had me on, I graduated, I went to school in engineering, I had, I had work in that field, and, and I said, wow, if I would stay in that field, I would have a pension, I would have a stack of cash, I would have money on top of money, I would have all of these things, but God says, no, I have for you to, to walk in my path, in my ways. And I thought then, I said, well, Lord, this is going to be good. Because when I give myself to you, I know what's going to happen. Sweet communion is going to become this huge mega ministry that's going to take over Milwaukee. You're going to bless it in such a way, I'm just going to speak the word, and people are going to fall out and trust in you. Guess what? Didn't quite happen like that. What's my point? That it doesn't pay to trust in God? No. My point is this. You have to have faith to walk in his ways. Because we're walking around the weeds, folk. <laughs> they, they, they sprout out like nothing. You don't got to plant nothing to get those there. We're a tender plant. We need to trust in God. And walk in his ways. He says, sow righteousness. It takes faith to do that. Because I realized if I had sowed in that other, I could see the benefit of that. I could see it. I could actually count it. But he says, sow righteousness. Because it takes faith to sow righteousness. How are you going to sow righteousness? You need to sow, first of all, investing in the Lord. You need to say, I am going to put God first in my life, whether I see the results of that or not. See, Israel was looking at other nations and they said, hey, look at all the stuff they got and they worship this God. Their harvest seems to be good. They're protected from their enemies. How come we can't be like that? We struggle. But God says that struggle is called trusting in me. It's called trusting in me. In this life, you don't always see the positive results. They don't always jump out at you. In fact, in the, the days of our lives here, it may not pay to be righteous. 
Let me say that again. In the short days of your life here, it may not seem to pay to be righteous. But don't discount eternity. Don't discount eternity. My 90 years or how many years God is going to give me here might be full of evil and wickedness and weeds and hardships. But eternity makes it all worthwhile. God says, trust in me. So he says, sow righteousness. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground. So he says to his people, look in your life, those areas that you had once turned over and was given to the Lord, but now you've fallen back. And the ground that you have plowed is naturally going to be infested with weeds. Go back, break it up. Go back, break it up. Break up the fallow ground, he says. And he says this, for it is time to seek the Lord. He's saying, can you imagine this? If Hosea was full of a, 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 of a message of simply God's judgment and doom, why would he say it's time to seek the Lord? He said that because it's true. He says that because he is telling his people, if you will come and if you will put me first in your life, if you will seek me, you will reap steadfast love. You will reap the Lord who cares for you, who invests in you, who loves you. So he says, do this. And then he says this, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. I like that term. It's another agricultural term, isn't it? He's going to rain righteousness how interesting it is that we don't often like rain. We know we need it. And we're reminded that the Lord's rain, as he says in some of the previous chapters, are, are this gentle spring shower that comes. He's not talking about a violent storm and a flood that destroys things. He's talking about the gentle spring shower that comes and cultivates and, and, and makes everything fresh and new. Many of you know I, I ride a motorcycle. So we get down to this time of year and it's just starting to get warm. And what often happens is the, the weather, I, I don't really bring it out until it gets about 60 on a regular basis or above. And, and sometimes what happens this time of year, it gets to be 60, but then it rains. And you go, oh, I can't ride today. I can't wait to get out on it and ride, but I can't ride today because it's going to be warm, but it's going to rain. So we often don't like the rain, but we need it desperately. God is saying, <laughs> I will rain righteousness upon you. It will be what you need. It may not always be pleasant for you. And it may seem to come in times that aren't convenient for you. That's because you got your agenda. And then your agenda doesn't always match with my agenda. 
But he's saying, I want you to pour yourself into my agenda, and I want you to, to, to look for my blessing that comes in righteousness, that comes in rain, that will be just what you need. Sow for yourself righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground. For it is time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Father, we pray that as your people we will see your warning. We will see that you do indeed deal with sin. Consequences will not be avoided. But that you offer repentance and reconciliation. Lord, I pray as you speak to our hearts today that we be willing to submit to you. We be willing to, by faith, walk in obedience to you. As you said in this passage, soul righteousness. We, by faith, would understand that the reaping of steadfast love is well worth it. By faith, we want to do that right now, Lord. So I pray that you touch hearts today. Those of us whose hearts have been touched, that you'd minister to our hearts right now. Cause us, in this moment right now, to settle our hearts to determine that we will at this time it's your time you said it is time to seek you and we will seek you Lord right now whatever circumstance we find ourselves in that we be devoted to you committed to you surrendered to you obedient to you willing to follow your will and your purpose for our life wherever that leads we won't put any conditions on it, Lord. We'll say, lead us, guide us. We need you to rain righteousness on us. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we find our salvation. We trust none other, no other means for our saving than what you provide in your, your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Remind ourselves that our walk is by faith in him and that we walk in obedience to you because of him. So, Lord, I pray that you challenge hearts today. You bring us to that commitment of trusting you and of walking in obedience to you right now. Lord, if there's one here today that needs to trust in Christ for Lord and Savior, that you would move in their heart right now, help them to see. Your judgment is true. It will come. Your salvation is sure. And it's in the Lord Jesus Christ. And only in him. Speak to hearts right now, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray.